Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, for you disform my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, and I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not yet one. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. Now, Father, we're so thankful for these children who all week long heard some of the very truths we just read from your word. That life begins at the moment of conception. That you wove us together in our mother's womb. We just want to pause and thank you for the change of heart in our Supreme Court. We know people will still seek abortions if they really want one. But thank you, it's more difficult and that lives will be spared and saved. Help us to value life. Help us to teach your standard faithfully, consistently, and without apologetic. Our Father, as we come to worship you in your word, we want to thank you for these little ones that stood on the stage and some teenagers and for the word they heard this week. Thank you for those who received Jesus as Lord. Thank you for those who came to this church for the first time today. We pray that their parents would make that a habit. And those that have never met you, that a turning point might happen. And now feed us with your word. May the Spirit of God be our teacher. May he help me and fill me and anoint me and use me, that together we might lift up the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take a Bible and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, just find the last book, Revelation, and scan back a little bit, and you will soon come to 2 Peter. If you're joining us for the first time, typically we preach through entire books of the Bible. But we are between books right now, and I'm doing a 15, maybe 20-week series on God's prophetic schedule. Now, these are exciting days in which we find ourselves. And the world is talking a lot about a new world order, about a global reset. And that shouldn't surprise us entirely because the Bible predicts these very things. But I think you will see before we are finished with this series that the Antichrist is going to try to attempt that very thing. And I really believe with all my heart that the stage for what he intends to do is being set. With that said, the ultimate new world order will come when Jesus comes. In fact, here in our chapter this morning, when we come down to verse 13, we'll read, but according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the ultimate new order will not come about by the governments of man. It won't come by Satan or his antichrist. It will come when the Lord Jesus returns. 
C.S. Lewis once said, no clever arrangement of bad eggs will ever make a good omelet. That's true. We can try to rearrange the chairs and the Titanic and polish the brass, but the ship is going down. And one of these days, this planet that is rotating in outer space is going to have a big meltdown, and God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, men may laugh at that. Men may mock that, but it's what the Scripture teaches. And I want to remind you this morning that one of Satan's chief tools is to ridicule, to laugh at, and to scoff the child of God because he knows that he can knock you off kilter and discourage you. And that doesn't surprise us because that's what he's about. He is a liar. Jesus said he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he tells a lie. He speaks from his own nature because Jesus said he is the father of lies. And so Mr. Liar wants to destroy your life, either for eternity, trying to convince you that the truth of the Bible shouldn't be embraced, or he will try to take the true, genuine, secure child of God and to discourage him so that he might not grow and be usable in the hand of God. And so we are living in a day of scoffing and mocking and ridicule, and God wants to prepare us for this day in which we find ourselves. I, it sounds like you've found it by now. Second Peter chapter 3, I'm going to read the first 10 verses, follow along. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So Jesus is coming again, you say. Where is he? You Christians have been saying this for 2,000 years. Why don't you just forget it? He is not coming back. That's the voice of the mocker. That's the voice of the scoffer. And they say all this talk about Jesus coming back to fix things up, to judge the living and the dead is sheer nonsense and folly. And if you've not encountered these people, you will. And so you can see the morning's topic is scoffing at Christ's return. And God wants, through his apostle, to prepare us so that we might be steadfast, that we might not be deterred when these scoffers come. And so this morning, God not only wants you to walk steadily, he wants for you to be able to give an answer 
when you're confronted by such people. So three simple truths. If you're using the note-taking outline, it's in your bulletin. If you're online, you can print it out. The first truth is that Peter reminds us about the warning of God in the past. The warning of God in the past. Now, I want you to notice how this chapter begins. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So he tells us this is the second letter. Of course, his first letter is right in front of this. It's called 1 Peter. This is his second letter. And he says, I'm writing to stir up your thinking, to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So remembrance, it's a key theme in this entire letter. And God wants to stir us up. He doesn't want you to glaze over this morning and just sit there. He wants you to listen. This is important. In fact, he's already said back in chapter 1, if you turn back a page, chapter 1, he said in verse 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And I will also be diligent, he said in verse 15, that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter wants us to be able to recall the scriptural truths that he is going to unfold for us this morning so that long after he's dead, you will know what it is that you are to believe. And so it's the duty of every preacher to repeat himself. Repetition is something that's important. I know today pastors want to be cute and novel, but we are called to preach the book, and that means repeating the book over and over and over again. Jesus did that by model, and the apostles did it not only by command, but by model in the Acts of the Apostles. A large part of preaching and teaching is helping people to grab a hold of the truth. And there are five reasons, I think, found in Scripture why God would tell us to repeat ourselves. Number one, God commands pastors to do this. Four times in this letter alone, he tells us that we need to repeat. We need to stir people up by way of reminder because God wants us to get it. He knows this is a need we have, and God is a whole lot smarter and wiser than we are. Secondly, God knows that it takes several times. Not only is it by command, but it takes several times before you often really grasp a truth, before you own the truth, and you have to hear it again. And third, God would have a preacher to repeat himself because he wants you not only to grasp the truth, but to come to a level where you can explain the truth. So if I ask you, what are the four commands in the New Testament that summarize our responsibility to the Holy Spirit? See, it's one thing to say, well, I know it's important to be filled with the Spirit, but if you're trying to help the new Christian to walk in the Spirit, what are those four commands? See, that's an entirely different level that God wants to bring us. Fourth, we need to be able to uh, repeat truth because among other things, it's a measuring stick of how you are spiritually when you hear it over again. You say, well, I've heard this passage so many times, I think I could teach it. That's arrogance. That's pride. And God wants a humble, clean heart to be able to hear truth. And fifth, if a church is doing its job, there's going to be people who are hearing it for the first time. If you got just a bunch of old, crusty Christians and no one ever comes to know the Lord, you got a problem. That local assembly is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. 
So what I'm sharing today, maybe you've heard before, but some people are going to hear it today for the very first time. So he says here in verse 1, this is now, beloved, a term used to describe God's people. I love the world, but I love those that God has given me as my children in a special way. And God loves the whole world. He loves the people of this world, but only his people are called beloved or beloved. Both the verb and the noun is used to describe the people of God. God has a special affection for his people. This now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So God wants us to remember. And what specifically would God have us to remember? Two critical truths here. First, remember the warning God gave by his prophets. Remember the warning that God gave by his prophets. Notice here in the first two verses again, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Why? Here's the reason that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter is saying, in effect, as your spiritual leaders, we want to stir you up. We want to make sure that you are mentally alert first to what the holy prophets of the Old Testament era wrote about. Again, Peter knew our minds can wander. He knew that we can hear a truth, but not really let that truth sink deep into our soul. And we end up being asleep spiritually. Spiritual lethargy is a problem in the church today. And so Peter, among other things, he, he has a grasp on the unity of Scripture. He is affirming what Jesus affirmed, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that these uh, prophets of old taught the very truth that he is going to tell these people who are receiving this letter. In the Old Testament, they wrote about mockers and scoffers who would make fun of God and make fun of his truth. As you read the holy prophets of old, you, just, you learn that they spoke of two comings of Christ. One, that he would come as a suffering servant, but he would also come as a victorious king. And so because the... Jewish people didn't always believe what the prophets of God said. In fact, they mocked them. Jesus said they killed them. They missed the first coming of the Messiah. Not all Jewish people. There are many Jewish people all the way through the Old Testament era. God has always had his remnant. And even when the Lord Jesus came, the early church initially was comprised entirely of Jews. But many mock the Lord. Now, understand there are two comings that are described in the Old Testament. They're like two mountain peaks of prophecy. And sometimes in a single verse, the whole program of God, both his first and second coming, are brought together. And we studied much of that when we looked at the book of Daniel and when we taught the book of Revelation. And between those two mountain peaks of prophecy, there's a valley. We call it the church age. So on one mountain, Mount Moriah, the Messiah would suffer and die. Another mountain, uh, the Mount of Olives, the Messiah will literally, physically actually return. He'll plant his feet on that mountain, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And so, when they spoke of his first coming, they spoke of the fact that there would be mockers. Maybe he had Isaiah 53 in mind, where the prophet says he was despised and forsaken of men. And the Old Testament prophets spoke of his second coming. Maybe they had Zechariah 13 in mind, where people would mock the rule and reign of the Messiah. And so, number one, you should remember the holy prophets. Number two, be on your outline. Remember the warning 
God gave by his son. Remember the warning God gave by his son. Again, Peter says here in verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So the holy prophets taught this, but so did the Lord and Savior as recorded through his New Testament apostles. Of course, Jesus himself warned of this in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Said a day is coming. In this context, he's looking specifically at the tribulation period that there will be people who will come saying they are the Messiah. They'll do all kinds of miracles and people will be deceived. And of course, even prior to that time, Jesus spoke there would be false prophets and false teachers. And so he will go on to say a number of times in the Olivet Discourse, he will command it, be on the alert. Be alert to these kinds of things. But not only did Jesus say it directly, he said it through his apostles. In fact, they're described here as your apostles. Why? Because they don't see themselves as big shots. They see themselves as servants of the living God. And Peter understood that Christ had not given him some papal authority. It's in the plural. You should circle the little letter S at the end of the word apostle. He is speaking here of the apostles who are speaking with the authority of God Almighty. Paul, for instance, said to the church at Ephesus, he gathered the elders there, and in his last sermon to them, he said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Jude, the apostle, gave the same warning. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers. Likewise, the apostle John gave a similar command. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver the Antichrist. And so John will describe the spirit of Antichrist that is at work. And someday the spirit of Antichrist will literally be embodied in a person. And so he'll go on to say, watch yourselves that you might not lose what you have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Now, John knew you could not lose your salvation. He affirmed our eternal security, but he also knew that false teachers could knock you off center where you could lose some of your reward. Uh, turn here in uh, 2 Peter to chapter 2 for a moment. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Again, I want you to see a similar warning that this apostle gave. That chapter opens, but false prophets also arose among the people. Now, when Peter said that false prophets also arose among the people, what precisely is he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament era, when Israel was plagued with the presence of false prophets. The people were constantly being led astray by false teachers. Not only did they have false prophets from without, like the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah during the time of Elijah, they also had prophets, false prophets from within who claimed to speak on behalf of Adonai, but they did not. And so the Bible says that a true prophet would be taught by God. He would be given divine revelation, 
Whereas a false prophet who claimed inspiration was doing nothing but revealing his own mind. That's why Jeremiah the prophet said this in Jeremiah 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. And then a few verses later, he'll say, the prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain? Absolutely nothing, declares the Lord. So God is not synergistic as so many Bible teachers and pastors are arguing for today. So we have more and more people who argue, well, their opinions are not contradictory, they're just complementary. And so at the Southern Baptist Convention 10 days ago, one of the best-known pastors in America who had ordained three women to the ministry to be elders in his church, he said, well, this is just a secondary issue. Is it really? When God says that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man, and then when he gives the qualifications for a pastor, they're all male qualifications. If you can tell me how a female can be the husband of one wife, I can tell you how she can be an elder or a pastor. Not to mention for 2,000 years, there was one common voice in terms of the roles of men and women. It's not that men are better than women. It's not that women cannot be fantastic Bible teachers. They can, but they're to do it over women and not over men. Why? Because there are different roles in the body of Christ. Men and women are equal, but they have complementary roles, just as in the home. The husband and the wife are equal. They're co-heirs of the promises of salvation. The man is to be the leader, and that's where your children will learn When children come in and the parents say, well, he's just rebellious and he doesn't listen to me, typically there's a problem with the marriage where either A, the husband is not being a loving leader or B, the wife is not submitting to his authority. That's where they learn to respect the police officer and leaders in the church and so on. And so his argument was, oh, you know, it's just a secondary issue. If God has spoken clearly on something, it's not a secondary issue. To deny what God has clearly said and to rewrite it is sin. It's a distortion of Scripture. And every major denomination in this country, one of the very first steps they took in going down the road of liberalism is they denied the distinct roles that God has for men and women. Again in verse 1 here of chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Peter is saying, just as many false teachers arose during the time of Israel's history, so you can expect the same in the church. When you look for a false teacher, never fail sometimes to look in the church. And Peter's uh, admonition here is largely going unheeded in our day. The average evangelical under the name of unity is willing to link arms with just about anybody and everybody. And they take grossly out of context the verse in Christ's high priestly prayer. Well, they'll know, Father, that you sent me by the unity and the oneness they have towards each other. But understand, 
You have to look at the full teaching of Christ. He told us that we are to, by his apostles, put out false teachers in the church. That if someone is not faithful and true to the faith delivered once and for all, if they do not have a serious belief in this book, they are to be rejected. Paul told the church at Galatia, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And as painful as division can sometimes be, it is far better to be divided by truth than to be united by error. And so God wants a certain purity in the church. And so he's dealing with the local assembly, people in the local assembly who get along with one another. That is the mark that God has indeed sent the Savior of the world because only he can produce that life change. Now back here in chapter 3 in verse 1. That you should remember, he says, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter is saying, in other words, don't be surprised, don't be discouraged, don't be disheartened, don't be depressed, don't be dismayed. Because the prophets of old, the Lord Jesus himself, and the Lord Jesus through his apostles said that there would be mockers. And he just wants us to be aware of that. And so Peter is giving us counsel on how to deal with mockers or scoffers, depending on your translation, in the last days. And remember, the Bible says the last days will go from bad to worse, 2 Timothy 3. While we've been in the last days since the time Jesus walked on the earth, those will increase in terms of the evil expressions they'll bring. All right, but he doesn't stop there. I want you to see, beginning now in verse 3, that Peter instructs us about the persistence of mockers in the present. He instructs us about the persistence of mockers in the present. Roman numeral 2 there in your outline. Now, please notice how verse 3 begins. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Know this, first of all, In other words, what I am about to say is of utmost importance, so do not miss it. That in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. He's reminding us that one of the signs of the last days will be mocking, scoffers. And that this scoffing and this mocking will go from bad to worse. Look, if you lived in America 50 years ago, while you may not have been an evangelical born-again Christian... You still had a certain respect. You had a certain uh, affinity for some of the things they taught. In fact, you may have followed some of the teachings they taught. No longer. Now the two camps are becoming more and more divided, and you have to choose camps. And so the Bible predicts not only the appearance of the Lord Jesus at the end of time, but also the appearance of mockers and scoffers at the end of time. So we shouldn't be surprised when they show up. They're called apostates. In fact, he spent all of chapter 2 describing an apostate. An apostate is not simply an unbeliever. Certainly all apostates are all unbelievers, but not all unbelievers are apostates. And so we saw that there's a narrow definition in the New Testament for an apostate, that an apostate is someone who knew the truth, heard the truth, and they've either totally rejected it or they've rewritten it. And that's the day in which we are living in. And so in the second chapter, he teaches us that these people that are described in that chapter don't take the truth of God's word seriously. 
just as the people mocked in Noah's day, just as the citizens of Sodom mocked the possibility that there would be fire and brimstone from heaven in Lot's day, even so the people in this day mock and scoff that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And so why do the scoffers scoff? Why do the mockers mock? Well, he explains two driving motivations here in verses three through five. First, their mocking is based on lustful desires. Their mocking is based on lustful desires. Look again at verse three. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And so why do false teachers, why do these apostates scoff and attempt to make fun? Why do they try to get other people to follow their examples? It's very simple. They want to continue living in their sin. And if your lifestyle contradicts the word of God that a pastor is preaching, you either change your lifestyle or you change your opinion of the Bible. And that's where we are today in a profound way like we've never seen before. And if you don't get anything out of this sermon but this, just follow this. Mark it down big and plain and clear. When you meet someone who says, well, I don't believe the Bible's the word of God. I'm not sure there's a heaven. I'm not sure there's a hell. I'm not sure there's even a God, then you are speaking to someone who has a moral problem. You have just met a person, to use Peter's words, that are following after their own lusts. Now, they may be living with someone. They may be having an affair. They may be getting ready to leave their spouse. They may love the bottle or some pill that they're taking. Maybe they're hooked on porn but they are following after their own lusts. And rather than set their conscience according to what the Word of God says, they recalibrate their conscience, which means they must mock and scoff at you. And I have no doubt there are some maybe who are tuned in today who are laughing and mocking me. They're just saying, he's one of those doomsday Bible-thumping preachers. Here's a photo after someone claimed, oh, Jesus is coming. This foolish person, as we'll see in a moment, even set a date. And so they said the end was nigh, it made national news everywhere. Well, where is he? You Christians, you say he's coming. Where is he? And so they hate us today. More and more, because we say Jesus is coming back. We're speaking accountability. They hate us because we say there's only two genders. They hate us because we say the baby in that womb is human life created by God. And while I am so thankful, because I've prayed for it for decades, as many as you have, that it would go back to the States because maybe we could stop or at least slow down this death run. Militant baby killers. That's what they are. They are baby killers. Don't whitewash what God plainly says. Now, God wants to forgive the baby killer. But listen, if you can't find forgiveness because you don't want forgiveness, then you will attack the moral standard that God has set. 
So they hate us because we say there's just two genders. They hate us because we say that life in the womb is human life created by God. And they hate us because we say marriage is between a man and a woman. And so we have an upside down morality in our day. Why? Because they're following after their own lusts. Peter has already said in 2 Peter 2.19, promising them freedom, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. That's why we have these scoffers. They want the legalization of drugs. Who would have ever imagined that we would legalize pot? And listen, young person, the pot that you're smoking is 20 times stronger than maybe the pot your parents smoked. Much of it is laced by fentanyl, and it's coming across the southern border. In one year, we went from an average of 20,000 overdose deaths a year to over 100,000. The evil one has come to kill and destroy. They love homosexual marriage. They love this wicked sex ed instruction that your kids are given, most of them starting in the third grade. I didn't know that's happening. Well, you better wake up because it's happening all across America. You see, their problem is not a problem of their head. It's a problem of the heart. They're following after their own lusts. So number one, their mocking is based on their lustful desires. Number two, their mocking is based on willful ignorance. It's based on willful ignorance. Let's keep reading. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What are they saying? They're saying, you preachers have been preaching this for 2,000 years. I had a guy tell me, that's what my grandmother said. She said, Jesus was coming back. She's dead now. Well, she was right to say Jesus is coming back. She had it right. They say, well, day follows day, night follows night, month follows month, year follows year, century follows century. Where is he, Christian? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. Where is this promise of his coming you guys have been preaching? And then they argue, according to the laws of nature, life is simply one continuous, unbroken experience. It's called uniformitarianism. Nothing has changed. Nothing cataclysmic has ever happened in time and space. This idea that Jesus is coming back is just foolishness. But Peter says such a denial is willful ignorance. Look again at verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. Now, if you have the NASB with marginal notes, when there is a more literal rendering that may not read smoothly, they'll put it out there in the margin. So you'll notice the margin. You might want to circle it. For they are willfully ignorant of the fact. In fact, the King James follows the Greek a little more literally here. For they willfully are ignorant. The new King James says they willfully forget. You know, some people are ignorant just because they're ignorant, but other people are ignorant because they're willfully ignorant. They deliberately overlook, the ESV renders it. They put out their own eyes because they do not want to see the truth. Why? Because if what I'm preaching is true this morning, 
That means they are accountable. That means they're going to have to deal with the living God. And Jesus said men won't come to the light. Why? Because they love their evil deeds. Paul says they will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Willful ignorance. Again, verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. They willfully and deliberately ignore God's hand in the creation. And they do it all in the name of science. Now listen, I'm not opposed to science. It all depends what you mean by science. There's a difference between operational science and origin science. I love science in that I can get in an airplane and fly to the other part of the world or call someone up in the Ukraine as I just did or uh, call my children in another state and FaceTime with them. That's operational science. But operational science is far different from origin science. You see, operational science can be tested in a laboratory where origin science is sheer theory. And it's based on some presuppositions that A, there is no God, and there is no such thing as the supernatural. So you have to come up with another way in which you explain this world. And so a paleontologist who's a born-again Christian, he will come to a very different conclusion from what he will examine than one who starts with the premise that there's no God and there's no such thing as miracles. And most Christians today are just ignorant. That was the basic premise in which evolution was formed under. And so you have these unbelievers who are willfully ignorant. The so-called intelligentsia, they believe it's superstition for us to teach what we teach. Nothing cataclysmic has ever happened in time and space. And they're basically saying, don't confuse me with the truth. Follow Peter's reasoning. It's very clear here. For when they maintain this, when they're willfully ignorant over these things, it escapes their notice by design, willfully. It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So Peter points to their inconsistency by underscoring two truths. One, God's intervention in the creation of the world, and secondly, God's intervention in a worldwide flood. He's telling us that God is not so far removed from the creation as the evolutionists would want us to believe. God created the heavens and the earth by his word. Nine times in Genesis 1, it says, and God said, and God said. God spoke it into existence. The psalmist said, put it in the margin next to verse 5, Psalm 33, 9. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So the Bible is clear that God just spoke it all into existence. And if you do not understand that, then you don't understand anything. Because if you're ignorant of the past, you will, by virtue of logic, be ignorant of the future. If you are wrong about the origin of the world, you will be wrong about the destiny of the world. The very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so many foolish Christians today are saying, oh, you, you know, you can believe in theistic evolution. So we have a so-called apologist by the name of Tim Keller who says theistic evolution is a viable option. No, it's not. It contradicts the plain teaching of Scripture that death enters into the universe through sin, that there was no death 
prior to sin entering into the world. And so Keller argues that chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis are contradictory and full of errors unless they're poetry. So not wanting to say that they're contradictory and erroneous, he said the first two chapters of Genesis are poetry. Listen, people want to reject the truth of the creation because they want to reject the truth of God. Jesus said, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men, meaning people, love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. So his first argument is rooted in creation. Mr. Skeptic, Mr. Mocker, you say God never intervened before. Well, he did because by his word, he created the world. By his world, he, word, he flung out the stars. He scooped out the seas. He made it all just by speaking it. What's their theory? Out of the glue into the zoo, that became you. Well, where did the glue come from? Where did this inorganic matter come from that this whole planet and world and universe evolved from? They have no explanation. So Peter is showing their faulty reasoning. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. His argument is simple. It's all done by God's spoken word. Word. By the word, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now follow along. He gives a second illustration when God directly intervened, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. Now you see that word flooded? It's the Greek word cataclysmo. It's a Greek word that means to deluge or to overwhelm with water. We get our English word cataclysm from it. In other words, he's saying there was a great flood. There was a time when God intervened before in time and space. So God powerfully brought about an intervention when he created the world and he spoke the universe into existence and God brought about a second intervention when he flooded the whole world um, with water. The psalmist said it so well. I love Psalm 115 and verse 3. But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. If you were here a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man would be like the coming, would be like the days of Noah. And we saw that there are three major characteristics that typified the people in Noah's day. There was godless apostasy. People were falling away from the truth that God had given them. The moral code, the moral dictates that God had. In addition, there was godless anarchy, and so there was gross immorality, there was violence, there was lawlessness, and there was great apathy because Noah, whom the New Testament tells us was a preacher of righteousness, they just yawned in the face of his sermons. And may I remind you, those same three characteristics typify the day in which we live in. And so the Bible says here in verse 6, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So Peter is just saying, don't be discouraged by these, this teaching of uniformitarianism that God has never intervened before. Because he has in the creation and in the world flood. And you know what I find interesting? that those are the two principal doctrines in the last 95 years. 
that secularists have attacked. It's like God was looking down the corridors of time to the end of time when the last days would go from bad to worse, knowing that man would attack him as the creator and they would attack this truth that there was a great flood. You know, the flood story is not unique to the Bible. After the flood, of course, the world was populated again and man got arrogant and there was the Tower of Babel. And so God brought confusion, the Hebrew word for a Babel. And so they were divided, of course, by their language groups. You would hang with someone you could understand and people married within their language groups. And so we have not the races, there's one race. We have the ethnicities, the goyim, the ethnos, that came as a result of the Tower of Babel. Of course, the evolutionists want you to believe something different. But understand, God's word is clear. God's word is crystal clear that what took place at Babel was a precursor to what's going to happen. We'll see it before we're done. We are going to see that what happened at the Tower of Babel is going to be replicated at the end of time. But you need to come back for the rest of the series. So I'm going to just save that as a commercial. But what I want you to see here is that the world was created by God's word, but in a moment's time, it's going to melt down. Notice here the phrase, it's reserved for fire. The word reserved there is the Greek word therazo. Sorry, I'm tongue-tied this morning. Therazo, we get our word thesaurus from it. A thesaurus is a collection of things. In fact, if you have the Young's literal translation, it says that not reserved for fire, but treasured with fire. Paul uses this same word in Romans 2 when he talks about people who have all this revelation, but they ignore the revelation God has given them. And what are they doing? They're treasuring up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. Hell is awful for anyone who goes here, but it won't be the same for everyone. Somehow in the perfect justice of God, some are treasuring up more wrath than others. Jesus used the same word when he commanded believers to treasure up things in heaven and not on earth. Same verb. And so God says here that the world is reserved or stored up or treasured with fire. What's he speaking about? Well, I'm not sure Peter fully knew, but God the Holy Spirit knew when he had him pen this. Maybe he revealed it to him but it doesn't change the truth of what was written. You know, until a short time ago, 70 or so years ago, man didn't know that within every object on the earth, there's energy. And so we learned how to split atoms, and so we have the atomic bomb. Science tells us that in, the gla- in a glass of water, if they could figure it out, they say there's enough energy in a glass of water to take an ocean liner all the way around the world. Now, if you told that to my grandfather, that there was fire and power and rocks and water, he would have thought you were crazy. But that's what science realized, and so they gave us the first atomic bomb. By the way, someone asked me recently, do I think the world will be destroyed by a nuclear holocaust? And of course, the answer from the Bible is no. That's not to say that we couldn't have some kind of limited nuclear war. But as we'll see this morning, the scripture is very clear. That's not how the end will come. In fact, in Colossians 1.17, you should write it out in the margin next to verse 7. 
There it says that in him, in Christ, he holds all things together. Everything in the universe, all of its power is held together by Christ. But one of these days, he's going to open his hand. And there's going to be a big meltdown. In fact, fast forward to verse 10 in your mind here. Notice he says, but the day of the Lord... If you've been with us in this series, we've seen that the day of the Lord is not referring to a specific day, but to a time frame, like the day of your youth doesn't refer to one day, but that time in which you were a youth. Go back and look at the second message in this series, and we saw the day of the Lord includes the great tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, the millennial reign of the Messiah. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which, now please notice, circle that word in. It doesn't say at which, in which. Every word is inspired, Jesus said. Every letter is inspired, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said the smallest mark within a letter is inspired. If it had said at which, then at the second coming, the whole earth would melt down and that's the end. He is talking about the day of the Lord in which during this whole time frame, during this whole program, one of the things that will take place, which John puts at the end of the thousand year period, the world will melt. Look at it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, that word roar, it doesn't come out in English, but it comes out in Greek. It's one of those onomatopoeia words. We have words like that in English that sound like um, you read them. There's sound to them, so to speak. Well, the word here in Greek refers to a crackling roar. In fact, the King James tries to capture the onomatopoeia of the Greek. It says, with a great noise. That's beautiful. One of these days, Jesus is going to open his hand, and there's going to be a tremendous explosion. You see, man has it backwards. We think it all began with a big bang. It's going to end with a big bang. God's just going to let it all go, and the creation will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. They'll melt. Now, if you tried to tell my grandfather that, he would have thought you were crazy, that there is energy within matter, that it's stored up with fire, but it's someday the Lord is going to let it go. So one, God's past involvement also alerts us to his future judgment, but God's present patience also alerts us to his unchanging love. His unchanging love. Let's look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years in a thousand years like one day. Once again, Peter exposes the ignorance of the mockers. Not only are they ignorant of what God has done in the past, they are willfully ignorant of what God himself is like. They want to create and manufacture God the way they want him to be, not the way he is. Now, God has no beginning, and God alone has eternality. Now, man has immortality, but there's a difference. God had no beginning or end. But when God created you, he created you to be an immortal person. You will live forever and ever and ever, either in heaven or in hell. But God is eternal, and he dwells above and apart from his creation. We call that the imminence of God. God is beyond time. God doesn't operate by some alarm clock. In God's economy, one day is like a thousand years, and the thousand years is like a day. Moses prayed this in Psalm 90, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. 
So God sees things from a perspective that the mockers don't. Oh, 2,000 years you've been preaching Jesus is coming. And Peter is reminding us he's only been gone two days. The Lord is not slow about his promise. So one, they don't understand God's eternality, but neither do they understand God's patience. That's what he underscores here. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why? Because he's merciful. He's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So why has he delayed his return? It's not because he's impotent. It's because he's patient, and he's patient because he's holding the door of mercy and forgiveness open another day. Not wishing for any to perish. You believe that? I hope you do. There are some Christians who say it's all prearranged. And God created some to live in heaven. And God created some to live in hell. That you have no real choice. Don't ever let that get into your heart. God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is willing that none should perish, but all come to repentance. We just read in 2 Peter 2.1 of these apostates who, quote, deny the master who bought them. When Jesus died, he died not just for the elect. He died for the whole world. They say, well, his blood was wasted then. It wasn't wasted because the same blood that saves you will condemn the unbeliever. The unbeliever will have absolutely no way of saying, I didn't have a chance. Jesus didn't even die for me. No, he died for all so that all can believe, but not all choose to believe. He desires for all to be saved and for none to come to repentance. And so the hyper-Calvinists would say, some babies that die, they die and go to hell. That's a poison. That's a distortion of the very character and nature of God himself. And so sometimes when you hear that, you need to guard your heart with all diligence because it's not all prearranged and we'll see before we're done here. We have a responsibility to share this good news with a lost world. Now notice he wishes none to perish but all to come to repentance. So obviously repentance has something to do with salvation. So let's talk about that for just a moment. What does the word repent mean? Some say, well, it just means to feel sorry. Well, not necessarily. It's not so much a feelings word as it is an action word. The verb metanao means to change your mind. And even the adjective and the noun, it just carries the idea of a mind change. God is asking you to change your mind. Now, feelings may be involved, and so Paul speaks of a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, but the repentance is not the feeling. The repentance is the action behind the feeling. It's an action word. And of course, some people say, well, you have to feel really sorry for repentance to be real. Listen, God wired us all different, and it's used in different contexts. Remember when Peter stands up and he preaches his very first sermon on the day of Pentecost, and they're brought under deep, deep, deep conviction. And they say, brethren, what must we do? And he will, he will say, repent. 
So repentance, make sure you understand it's just a change of mind. It results in a change of action, but it's a change of mind. Don't make repentance a work where you front load the gospel, where you clean up your act so you can come to Jesus. You can't clean up your act. The one who sins is a slave to sin. Now, it will produce a changed life, and so John the Baptist can speak of producing fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3, 8. Or Paul can say in the book of Acts, I preach that they should repent and turn to God, improve their repentance by their deeds. And when those Jewish people are brought under deep conviction, as he shows them verse by verse through an expository sermon that Jesus is Lord, that they killed the Messiah. Brethren, what should we do in one word? Repent. Change your mind. What is he asking them to repent about? They said Jesus was only a man where the scripture says he is the God-man. And you must change your mind over that. So Peter is calling them to repent. But understand that conviction by the Spirit of God doesn't necessarily always produce conversion. There are people in scripture who are convicted by the Spirit of God, but they don't repent. Stephen stands up there and he says, you're always, you stiff-hearted men, resisting the Spirit of God who was convicting them. Remember Paul when he had Governor Felix in front of him? He gave an incredible, compelling sermon concerning the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the Bible says in Acts 24, 25, and as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Paul, by the way, preached on hell. Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present time, and when I find time, I'll summon you. But he never summons Paul again. He was brought under conviction, but he didn't repent. So you can have conviction without repentance. In fact, you can have confession without repentance. We've been studying the Pharaoh, among other things, as we've been examining Moses' life. Do you remember Pharaoh? Plague after plague after plague, the plague of blood, frogs, insects, cattle, and, and boils. And finally, he says in Exodus 9, I have sinned this time. The Lord Yahweh is the righteous one. I and my people are the wicked ones. That was confession. But it was confession without repentance. A few verses later, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart. You can have conviction without repentance. You can have confession without repentance. In fact, you can have crying without repentance. Don't be fooled by the crocodile tears. Somebody said, oh, they really got saved. They were crying all over the place. Not always true. Think about Esau. He had a lust for food that superseded his lust for the things of God. And when he finally realizes what he has done, he wants to repent with tears. And so the writer of the Hebrews uses him as an illustration that there is to be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Crying in tears don't always mean genuine repentance. A lot of people feel sorry on Sunday morning for what they did on Saturday night, but they have no intention of changing anything. Feeling sorry doesn't mean you've repented. The rich young ruler, Jesus said, felt great sorrow. Understand, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, 
but to come to repentance. So maybe to help us to think about what repentance is, let's think about the flip side of repentance. Again, on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish people asked, brethren, what should we do? And Peter said, repent. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer asked the same question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe. He tells them to change your mind in Acts 2, Peter, about Jesus. And Paul just says, believe. He never mentions repentance. Why does not Peter simply say, believe? And why does Peter, Paul not say, repent? Because when you repent, you believe. When you truly believe, you have indeed repented. That's why John's gospel, the only gospel, in fact, the only book in the New Testament who tells us that one of its express purposes is for conversion. These things I've written that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah and believing you might have life in his name. And not once does the word repent appear. Wait a minute, Lord Jesus. You commanded the apostles that they are to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He did. By virtue of the way he presented the gospel, the way he asked people to believe, he was genuinely asking them to repent. Now listen, when you believe in Christ, you've repented, and when you've repented, you've changed your mind, then you've believed. That's what is involved. You cannot see sin as something that is to be cherished and be converted. You don't need a savior until you see sin for what it is. So all across America in our evangelical churches, people are shacking up with each other, living under the same address. It's because most of the time they really haven't believed. You can't cherish sin and hold on to it. You have to change your mind about sin. You have to change your mind about self. There's a lot of self-righteous people who will never see the inside of the kingdom. Why? Because they think it's a works righteousness. Or they wouldn't deny that Jesus died, but that's not enough. It's the Jesus plus plan. But unless you come as bankrupt and helpless, you will never see the inside of God's kingdom Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. Remember, he is asking people to consider the truth that God is not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That God is involved in time and space. He showed it through the creation. He showed it through the flood. And the only reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he's holding the door of mercy open just a little bit longer for that matter, you can have compunction without repentance. Judas is a classic example. He regretted that he betrayed Jesus. But he hung himself and he died and he went to hell. He went to hell, of course, not because he hung himself, not because he committed suicide. He just went to hell sooner than he went, would have went to hell. He went to hell because he was an unbeliever, but he had deep regrets. You can have conviction without repentance, crying without repentance, uh, confession without repentance, compunction without repentance, but you cannot have conversion without repentance. You must change your mind about sin, your self-sufficiency, and the Savior. And he just wants us to understand that don't be knocked off kilter by these mockers. 
God is just holding the door open to give people another day. Now, how are we going to apply this passage? Let me suggest four applications as we close our time. Number one, let me underscore this morning, we are not to set dates. We're not to set dates for Christ's return. When you set dates, you are giving mockers an opportunity to make fun We just read in verse 5 that by the word of God, the creation came into existence. Then we just read and studied verse 7, but that by the word of God, the world will come to an end. Not by the word of man, but by the word of God. Harold Camping, a few years ago, set a time frame when Jesus would come back. Yeah, nobody knows the day or the hour, but we know the year. So the first time around, he gave the year, and then he gave a date. 1994, 2011, mud all over his face. People sacrificed deeply, sold their homes, made all kinds of foolish decisions. One of our own members, his brother, went bankrupt over the whole schmeal. And to his credit, just before he died, three months before he died, he said, I was wrong that I sinned. So I will say that on his behalf. I have a book back there in my library, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1988. That man became a millionaire. And I can still see Peter Jennings on September the 28th, uh, 1988, snickering and making fun. It didn't happen. Of course, 89 reasons. I mean, this guy had a lot of brass. Why Jesus will come in 1989, he didn't sell too many copies. And then we had some people who left this church in 2015. Because I wasn't in favor of this four blood moon theology. And all the wacko truth that they were unfolding to sell books. All this wackiness concerning the return of Jesus. Listen, the date is determined by his word, not by man's word. But of that day, Jesus told his disciples, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The precise moment can't be calculated by anyone. The angels don't know. Satan doesn't even know. He's an angel, a fallen angel. He doesn't even know. And when Jesus spoke these words, he said only the Father knew. When Jesus emptied himself, he took the form of a bondservant. He never lost any of his divine attributes, but he laid aside the exercise of those divine attributes to live in dependence upon the Spirit. He was still omniscient. He was still omnipresent. He was still omnipotent and immutable. But he depended upon the Spirit to exercise those attributes. So he could say, I know everything about Nathaniel. I know everything about the woman at the well. And he typically, in dependence on the Spirit, whether he opened up blind eyes or healed paralyzed limbs or unstopped deaf ears, he always did it in dependence upon the Spirit when he was authenticating that he was the Messiah. But when there was no need to authenticate that he was the Messiah, he could say, at least in his non-resurrected body, he didn't know the day or the hour. 
And so people say, but I do? In fact, he reminded us on the Mount of Olives at his ascension, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has chosen by his own authority. And so when someone sets dates, they're fueling the fire for mocking. Since nobody knows the time, don't waste your time trying to guess the time. Just be ready all the time because he can come back at any time. Secondly, we are to seek to be different. We are to seek to be different. We're not to set dates. We are to seek to be different. After giving us these warnings and instructions, notice how Peter applies the truth starting in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct in godliness? See that word sort? I think the King James, if I remember, said manner. It's a Greek word that means something that is foreign. He's already said in 1 Peter 2 that we're strangers and aliens to this world. We're foreigners, so to speak. And so he's just underscoring that our manner of life, our sort of life, is to be different from the people of this world. Now, I'm not saying that he is teaching we should be weird. There are some Christians who are weird, and sometimes they confuse weirdness with holiness. Weirdness is not holiness. But we are called to be holy... In fact, he not only uses this word hagios, holy, to speak of our relationship vertically, but then he uses this second word, godliness, that describes our relationship horizontally. In other words, we need to be clean in our walk with the Lord vertically, and we need to be walking in righteousness with our brother. If we're at odds with our brother, we can't expect God to use us. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people are you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Sin has marred and ruined the creation that we're in. But someday paradise lost will be paradise regained. God will create a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, and there'll be no sin ever again to mess it up. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. There's not many things you can take with you to heaven. If you're married and you have children, hopefully you'll take your children and grandchildren because they've received Jesus as Lord. But you'll take your character there to the judgment of the just, which we will study in the weeks ahead. Third, we are to seek to win people to Jesus. Not only should we seek to be different, we are to seek to win people to Jesus. Verse 15 says, in regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Peter's restating what he just said back in verse 9. The only reason that's keeping Christ from coming back is the patience of the Lord. He's patiently waiting for more people to get saved. And what appears to be a negative inaction on the behalf of the thinking of the mockers is actually a positive demonstration of God's love. Macrothumia. Macro means large. Thumia means heat. We get our word thermos from it. And so literally, he's speaking here of a large anger when he renders this word patience. The King James says long-suffering. But one of these days, the long-suffering of God's patience will break to his wrath. In fact, listen to what 
James said about Peter's sermon. Acts 15, let me just read a couple of verses. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after these things, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. So the prophets agree. After these things, after what things? After the saving of the very last Gentile takes place. You see, this is a Gentile church. Now, God has always had a remnant, and there's always been a remnant of Jewish believers. But one of these days, the, Gentile who's, the Gentiles who have been leading the cause are going to be replaced by the Jews. And when the last Gentile is saved, after these things, the program for the second coming will begin to unfold, the rapture leading to the second coming. And I would just say, if you're not a Christian, one of these days, time will run out. You say, I don't think it will happen today. It may run out for you today. You could die before this day is over. One of our dear, precious deacons went home to heaven last night. He woke up. Everything was fine. He wasn't planning to go to heaven at the end of the day. Some of you, everything's fine. I've got plenty of time. You're going to meet God either by death or when the rapture takes place, as we'll see. It will be too late for you then. So the scripture says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call upon him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless they have a preacher? He's not talking about me. He's talking about us. He's using the word generically in Romans 10. That we're all preachers. The question, are we faithful preachers or unfaithful preachers? Suppose you're to pass a house here in town and you see the roof's on fire. Man, the house is on fire. You call 911 and you go and you start banging on the doors and everything's locked. And you look through the window and you see this lady and she's in the room with the baby and the baby's in a crib and she's gathering all her pearls and her treasures and putting them all in a suitcase and, and she seemingly is ignoring the baby and the house is beginning to fill up with flames and smoke and you say, what's wrong with that woman? She's sick. She has a warped value system. She's like a lot of Christians. We have a warped value system. We're living for the here and now. And we can't remember the last time we tried to bridge a conversation with someone concerning the forgiveness that can be found only through Jesus. Finally, we are never to stop growing. We are never to stop growing. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul by the way, Paul severely rebuked Peter at one time, but Peter was a big man. He didn't let that stop him. He received the rebuke, and they went on as best friends. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them 
of these things. Paul spoke a lot about the return of Jesus and how we should live, and which are some things hard to understand. I would agree with that. (laughs) Which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. I've studied a lot of different kinds of manuals and even used to read some of my dad's medical books. But you know, most of the time you can kind of figure them out. The Bible is the most challenging book I've ever studied in my life. Now, it doesn't say it's impossible to understand. It just says it's difficult to understand. But he wants to underscore that the willfully ignorant distort it to their own destruction. So, you therefore, verse 17, beloved, know this beforehand. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Peter is saying, don't say I didn't warn you. The mockers are coming and they're growing and their hatred is intensifying. Peter knows you can't lose your salvation. He's already underscored the eternal security of the believer in this epistle. But he does know you can lose your steadfastness. And so he commands us in verse 18, grow, that's a command, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we're saved by grace, but we are to grow in grace. And one of the ways that you will be not knocked off kilter by the mockery and the scoffing of believers in the last day is for you to be growing. And that's why a pastor is to open the word. But if I open the word and 30 minutes later, you can't even remember the sermon and you don't care to. You've got a problem. You're either lost or you're out of fellowship with the living God. But when you obey what you know, you will grow and you will be strong And you will have the spiritual steel to be able to help not only yourself, but others around you, especially your own children and your grandchildren. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to open your word, which is alive. We don't know when you're coming, but you certainly have said much about the time frame. We know we are at the end of time. You've told us to live with one eye on eternity while our feet are on the ground where we are attending to the business that you have called us to. We are thankful that someday a new world will be created in which righteousness dwells, but you have warned and said it over and over and over again to be a part of the new world. To enjoy heaven, you have to have a new birth. So help someone today to call upon Jesus to own their sin as wrong that needs to be forgiven and changed, to see themselves as bankrupt and to see Jesus as Lord. Help someone in childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, help us especially to prepare our children and our grandchildren because they will experience lonely days on their university campuses as they are opposed and mocked and made fun of, and even in their places of work. Help us to prepare them for these days as we prepare our own hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.